Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. Awesome. Can you find your seat this morning? I'm so glad that you joined us here as we are kicking off our series called Confronting Christianity. Uh, Really excited about what we're walking through in this series. Uh, Before we jump into it and dive into it, there's a lot we're going to walk through today, but before we do that, I want to give you a preface for how we're going to end the service today. Uh, At the end of every service in this series, we are going to gather and pray for something very specific. We've begun to see God move in really miraculous ways, specifically involving healings. And so today, we're going to pray for those struggling with cancer. So at the end of service, I'm just saying to preface you, I like to give a little like heads up so you know you're ready. But we're going to pray together if you or someone in your family or or a friend or you want to stand in the gap for somebody who is struggling with cancer, and we're going to pray at the end of service. So I'm just giving you the heads up there before we dive in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're here because as we launch off our series called Confronting Christianity, we're asking the question, aren't we better off without religion? You know, studies have shown the, re- the rise of religious nuns in this country. Now, not nuns, N-U-N-S's. There's no great monastic revival happening in this country that I'm aware of. But none, as in people who would say, I'm affiliated with no religion. In fact, college students, uh, in, in a survey I recently read, college students are at about 30.9%. So almost 31% of college students say, I have no religious affiliation. And though there's a rise in nuns, and people uh, designated as nuns, uh, there, there is still a predominant uh, world focus on religion. In fact, if 30, you know, 0.9% say none, then that means that, you know, 60 odd percent still say Yes, I I, I do prescribe to some kind of religious affiliation. And in fact, when we get a little more diverse with our criteria, because the predominant uh, makeup of religious nuns are uh, are white males, when we get outside of that and we begin to study things like historically black colleges, they're at 83% identify as Christian, let alone religious. So I say that to say that there's questions being asked, but in asking these questions, I don't want to give off the impression, though the media tries, that we are in some massively post-religious, post-Christian time or space, but that it is actually a very functional part of life that we interact with, and so whether or not you're religious or not, that question is being kicked around, right? And I say this to say as we begin and I talk through these things, if you are of a different religion or no religion, I want you to hear me say that I'm going to say things today that you disagree with, but I want you to know that I care about you because maybe we never met. I just, I still respect people. And so out of respect for you, I have worked hard to put together a comprehensive uh, argument. As a student of philosophy, I value that. And so I want you to hear me say that we might disagree. No, I'm not picking these off the top of my head, but that I have searched high and low and, and worked hard at putting this together to honor your time here today. But also because I believe that there's an outcome that's important for us to understand uh, collectively. Because we live in a culture that's asking the question, you know, couldn't we abandon religion for a greater scientific or a, or a postmodern understanding of morality and people? Couldn't we abandon it? Isn't it part of some kind of barbaric, puritanical, controlling past? It's a question that's being asked. There, the way we used to ask it, I'm hearing it less nowadays, uh, but that could just be the state of our education system. The way we used to ask it is, or say it is, I would never be a Christian because of the Crusades. Be reasons like that. I'd never be a Christian because of blank, because of blank. And one of the ones historically in evaluating religion is, I hear people say all the time, well, not all the time, I hear it more than most probably, is I would never be a Christian because of the Crusades. And so as we ask this question, aren't we better off with religion? I thought there's no better place to start than the place that culture holds predominantly as this kind of black stain on Christianity over Christianity. So I figured let's just start with what do we do about the Crusades? Good? So what do we do about the Crusades? Oh, I left this coffee down here. If I don't move this, I will kick this over. (laughs) 
What do we do about the Crusades? Thomas Madden calls the Crusades one of the most misunderstood events in Western history. He said the most popular history of the Crusades have recycled myths long ago dispelled by historians. What are some of those myths? Well, the primary myth about the Crusades and usually why it's wielded as a tool to be anti-religion or specifically anti-Christianity, the primary myth is that the Crusades were an unprovoked attempt by Western Christians to force their faith on peace-loving Muslims. But the historic actuality is that the Crusades, according to Robert Louis Wilkins, the Crusades were a Christian counteroffensive against the occupation of lands that had been Christian for centuries before the arrival of Islam. One of the things that makes it difficult in Western uh, thought is a lot, we take a lot of things for granted as being like fresh thoughts, new thoughts, but a lot of things have just continued or ideas have continued. And one of these idea, ideas that has kind of evolved in our culture is the idea that everywhere that's now Muslim was always Muslim, and everything, every country and city and place that's Muslim was always Muslim and Christians were always a minority there. When in fact, a lot, there are many places in the world that are now Muslim that were Christian. So there was a time when Palestine, Syria, huge portions of Egypt and North Africa, Spain, Asia Minor, many places that are now predominantly Muslim were Christian and had been Christian for centuries. And so what happened is after Muhammad's death, just a little history here, after Muhammad's death, his armies and his generals took very serious his call for the militaristic spread, and they went and they began to take these places that were predominantly Christian lands. And again, I'm not, we can debate about religion. This is just history. This is numbers, figures, and time. So this I wouldn't recommend debating with me, because this, this is just, this is numbers, right? Uh, but... They went and they began to take these lands, neither here nor there. But one of the things that happened is after that progression of the loss of Christian land and the attack of Christian people, like, for example, when you go read Revelation and you read about churches in the Asia Minor or you read the New Testament and you read about churches in the Asia Minor, none of those exist today. And it wasn't because COVID, right? <laughs> There's a reason. And so following that, the Ottoman Turks came in, and the Ottoman Turks began to take Asia Minor and began to take Jerusalem. They sacked Jerusalem. They kidnapped the city's patriarch. They desecrated holy places. And what happened is Jerusalem and the Eastern Christians were like, hey, we're suffering. We're being slaughtered. We're being killed constantly. And they, they called to the Pope, who was the primary religious figure of uh, Western Christianity, and began to say, hey, send us an army, send us your army, send, you know, rally kings to come to our aid to protect us. And so they did. And the first crusade came, and they retook Jerusalem. But here's the problem with crusades. It's the same problem if you've ever looked at any war literally ever in all of human history. We love them to be these kind of movie, film, mono-ethnic, mono-cultural happenings, but they're not. That's not how war works. War is often, even with the best efforts of liberating an oppressed populace, an incredible opportunity for evil people to do evil things. That has been and probably will always be. That is a reality uh, that if you're not awake to, it's time to awaken to. And so though they liberated Jerusalem, they, they expressed some of the issues that Eastern and Central Europe and parts of what we would deem the Middle East or, or Northern East, issues that went on for centuries into Bosnia and Serbia and continue this day into Armenia and Azerbaijan, conflict that has continued and continued and continued. But, but I do want to give a point here that though I, I can make an argument for military involvement in protecting innocent life, we can't argue uh, using the New Testament, we can't argue for the slaughter of innocent lives, right? So when the crusading army goes in and kills innocent people in this tour, I mean, it was just a chaotic time and dark time of human history. When they go in and, and there is the slaughter of innocent civilians, there is no way that you can make the New Testament and its clear incentives against violence, there's no way you can use that to justify what happened. But I want to encourage you, because I think we have this myth 
that Christianity was justifying what happened. And I'm here to tell you, they weren't. Christian leaders, spiritual fathers, were not only decrying violence, specifically against Jews, which I think is always a wild thing, where people who say they're Christians would hate on Jews, like, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> but not only were Christian leadership decrying the violence, but Christianity as a whole was decrying the violence. So there isn't this idea that Christianity is some banner that's flying around murdering people. But that when evil happened, people said, wait a second, this does not stick with what we know to be true about Christ. Are you with me? This is not consistent with what we know to be true about the Lord. You might say, well, you know, I, I don't want to do the work of reconciling those two things. Which is fair. So you might say, I'll pick a religion with a less violent past. So I'm going to give you a couple options. None. You say, well, I want to I be a Buddhist. Someone told me, I want to be a Buddhist, you know. It's like very Zen. And I was like, yeah, I mean, if we start by just forgetting that Buddha abandoned his family to die because he didn't want any attachments, and then we move into modern times where the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar are being beaten, raped, tortured. They're literally burning babies. Uh, this is the Buddhist army doing this, by the way. So we run into this problem of our, our criteria gets weird when we start saying, okay, this, this. Oh, I'm just going to pick a different, le okay, well, what about the, the Buddhist army in World War II Japan that brutally tortured Christians? You might say, okay, well, fine. Then I'm going back to my original premise, which is no religion, right? No religion then. Like, if, if they're all getting twisted, if things are always happening and distorted, I just don't want to deal with anything from that religion only makes things worse. Let's just leave it behind. I think Karl Marx had a very similar dream. If you don't know Karl Marx, philosopher, psychopath. I'm sorry, I'm a philosophy student and I think his philosophy is lazy. I'm just saying, personal opinions, it's lazy. Karl Marx's dream, he said, but you never thought you'd heard me quoting Karl Marx in a sermon. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. It's the opium of the people. He says, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. Because according to Marx, the removal of religion was the road to justice. But as one historian said, Karl Marx's dream looks like a tattered rag when held up against the oppressive nightmare of communism. Well, let's just remove it. Then we won't have any... Okay, 61 million deaths in the USSR alone through communism. 35 million deaths in the People's Republic of China. And honestly, an overwhelming and immeasurable list of deaths and human rights abuses in North Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam, and on and on. R.J. Rummel said, of all religions, secular and otherwise, that of Marxism has by far been the bloodiest. Marxism has meant bloody terrorism, deadly purges, lethal prison camps, the bloodiest. <clears throat> Murderous forced labor, fatal deportation, man-made famines, extrajudicial executions, and fraudulent show trials, outright mass murder and genocide. Why do I bring this up? Well, because before we can say that religion is the problem, we have to also recognize if we're using the same criteria that anti-religious ideology has killed and abused millions upon millions and, a million, and millions. So it skews our evaluative criteria if we say, oh, okay, it's just because of this. It can't be. Oh, well, let's just remove it, and then it'll be fine. Well, apparently not. Historically, no. Ideologically, no. I don't want to give Marx too, credit, too much credit, because, again, I don't like him. But I would say I recognize where he sought for the freedom from oppression. I understand the void that he was trying to fill, though, with bad ideology. Because Jesus said in Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. But what Mark saw in his world of the day, though he looked through very distorted lenses, is that he, he believed he saw a world where that was not occurring that Christianity was not doing that, and so he thought the great might and power of the government could achieve that. Rule of thumb, the government's not going to do a good job at what God has called us to do. I mean, historically. There's just times where Christians do the opposite of what they're supposed to be standing for, 
We have to recognize that. We also have to recognize that Jesus tells us in his word that there will be those who identify as Christians but are not. And usually how you can tell is because they're twisting scripture or changing scripture to present a false God. Let me give you a good example. We've already talked about the Crusades. Let's talk about the Nazis. I mean, why not, right? It's a Sunday morning. The sun is shining. All right, let's get it all in here today. So the Nazis, who'd have thought? Karl Marx, Crusade, Nazis. Let's just keep it burning, right? The Nazis actually rewrote, if you didn't know this, rewrote the New Testament to justify their position so that they could onboard church. I don't know why churches went crazy. So that people would get on board with this idea. So they began to rewrite and dictate literacy and what could be read and rewrite the New Testament to tell a different version of who God is. Slave owners, right? I think slave owners in this country, they basically ignored the whole Bible, right, to justify the actions that they had occurred, right? You cannot read basically, I don't know, all of the Bible and justify slavery, in my opinion. But to their credit, this is why we fought a war on this, because people who did believe the word of God and did believe in equal human rights said, wait, a, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. The people who led that were the religious leaders of the day who said this is wrong. There will always be, a, be those people who twist Christianity to take it far from the message of hope and peace and life for the hurting and broken and those who do not. But the question is, if Christianity can be taken, it can be twisted, is it too much of a liability? Should we then uh, parse out and receive the portions of religion that we think are nice and fun-sounding and instead ground our, uh, ground our morality in other sources like science or thought or some kind of enlightenment perspective? I mean, right, if, Christianity, if religion is the problem, if religion is this barbaric tool of the past, could we not keep the elements we like and then just ground it in a different source? Here's a problem. If we abandon religion for how it's twisted, we have to abandon science for how it's twisted, too. And I got to say, I am a fan of science. I like medicine. Big fan of medicine. Big fan of, like, living. That's a, that's a big win for me, personally. I'm a fan of, of observing the known universe and discovering things. Fusion and, right, like nuclear power. Awesome, right? Big fan of science. Those are great things. Science has unfortunately taken on a weird term now, but science as it was meant to be, awesome. But if we use the same criteria for religion, we'd have to use the same criteria for science because arguably the Nazis did the same amount of evil with science that they've done with religion. So we face a problem there, at least in thought. But the second problem, and this is where I ask for grace for me to explain, because I can't preach an entire sermon on this, but I can hit some of it, but the series will explain more. The second problem is you cannot find a strong morality, a, a true morality cannot be defined without religion. And here's one of the biggest reasons. There is no universal agreement on human rights morally or ethically. Are you still with me? Yeah. Okay, I don't want to lose anybody here. I know this is a lot. I know normally it's expository. We're going verse by verse. But there is no universal agreement on human rights morally or ethically. There's a myth in Western culture, the myth that, that, that many live with, is that there is a set of agreed upon rights that we all know in our minds in our heads, in our, within us is a great understanding. But the reality is there is no universal, me, universal measuring stick of morality when it comes to these self-evident truths. There are no self-evident truths because they're not self-evident to everyone. And in fact, the myth of this freestanding universal morality is actually just birthed out of a document written by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a Christian. See, a lot of our understanding is actually kind of a twisted understanding because there was a document written called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it was written, ironically, by Helena Roosevelt, a Christian, and Charles Malik, who was a Greek Orthodox believer, Christian. 
And they wrote this document that had the inalienable rights that we believed, and it kind of stamped it on universal human rights, and they sent it out for countries to sign, and the countries that signed it were predominantly Christian countries, and then there was a whole set of countries that refused to sign it. Specifically, there were Muslim-based countries who said, again, their words, not as an attack on them, their words, they said, this is a Judeo-Christian article with values that do not work in accord with Islam. So there was a Western concept of fundamental human rights. It's the rights that you'll see talked about all the times. Yeah, there's fundamental human rights. According to who? Because there is no historical or global consensus. The Western concept of human rights historically comes through Christianity. I'm not even, I'm not even arguing biblically. I'm just, I'm just giving history right now. Are you still with me? That in Greek and Roman thought, men were worth more than women, slaves, or children. In fact, Plato and Aristotle directly supported eugenics. They were big proponents of making it law to kill deformed children. That's why I think it's amazing that people are protesting a universal human right in the streets saying it's about to set us back a thousand years. No, it's about to set us back 2,000 years when we repealed a 5,000 year horrific practice of killing children. What made Jesus so profound is he stepped into a world that did not value women, children, the poor, or the sick, and he elevated women. He valued children, he loved the poor, he embraced the sick, and he commanded his followers to do it. Many of the universal human rights that Westerners believe sprang from the progression of human thought and the Enlightenment actually came from Jesus Christ. Philosopher Ronald Osborne said, core humanistic values of inviolable human dignity, inalienable human rights, and intrinsic human equality cannot be upheld by a scientific naturalism that will ultimately always crumble into nihilism. Rather, they must be sustained by a vision of personhood such as the one found in a historically unprecedented way in Christianity. Now, there are universal human rights in the sense that everyone has human rights, but there's not universal human rights in the sense that everyone agrees on what those rights are. But Christ has set upon every person rights and values because of who they are. That's through Christ. And it's important that we understand that Christianity undergirds the moral position of human rights in the West. Now, hear me. If you're not a believer, you say, I'm an agnostic or an atheist. I'm not saying that atheists cannot have morality. The atheists are out, you know, they have no morals, no, no morality. That's, that's literally not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying it can't be birthed directly from secularism and atheism. If you're, if you're being honest. See, because we can take sociological and economic data that shows, that shows how societies thrive when human life is valued at a higher level, but that's a pragmatic answer. That's not a moral foundation. And so, if you're atheist or agnostic, you can have, of course, a moral framework. Most people do. But it's not the direct outworking of atheism. And in support of that, I'm going to read you two atheist professors from MIT who, who agree with this. Atheist MIT professor uh, Alex Byrne, philosophy professor, says, you can consistently hold atheism together with the idea that science tells you virtually nothing about the nature of reality, any view you like about morality or human nature or anything else. Followed by Professor Alan Lightman, who calls our sense of self an illusion. And since science is all we have, and our sense of self is an illusion, we're just atomic beings, we must then have no moral agency. So morality is no more than preference. If a child is Adam and a donut is Adam's, then as Lightman says, eat a child, eat a donut, anything goes. Now, I'm not here to say that atheists are eating donuts and children. That's not my point. So please don't get offended. That's not my point. I'm just saying if we're being reasonable in the production and, and the creation of a worldview, it cannot be produced from something that gives us no moral agency, that says you can't produce morality from something that says you have no moral agency or that it's an illusion. The opposite being so that Christianity says we're more than atoms, that we're given moral agency by God. 
Just as God freely devised the physical principles that govern the universe, so did he freely ordain the moral laws that govern us. And so it's not that non-religious people cannot construct a framework that values human life. It's just that secular humanism creates a worldview where morality and reality are at odds. Because how can humans be a collection of atoms laboring under a false belief that humans are moral agents, yet also be immense, equal, and of inalienable worth? You say, well, we could have some kind of altruistic evolutionary thought that we work together collectively in groups. And we sacrifice for the sake of our group to attain some collective end for power for our group. And so there is a sense of cooperation that occurs because we want to work together. Unfortunately, anytime evolutionary altruism is followed to its complete end, it's led to this other word that we super don't like, fascism. Because the necessary end of your group sacrificing for the sake of your group to elevate itself is fascism. It's like how the Nazis said, listen, we need to better the world by killing all the people in mental hospitals because that's how we can improve ourselves. And I know you would sit around and say, well, that's ridiculous. There's no morality in that. Yeah, exactly. Because you're working off a foundation that values people regardless of their social class. We, we just don't admit that it is what it is because we might not know that it is what it is, that we are rooted actually as a Western culture in Christianity. This is the God who created the stars and the galaxies also created us for special relationship with him. And that he calls us to give the same kind of radical self-giving love that overflows from his own heart. This is why wherever the gospel is carried, human life is elevated in value. Can it be distorted? Of course, anything can. But where the true principles of Christ are taken, Life is elevated in care and quality. Historically, scientifically, we can study this. That Christianity elevates human life. Are you still with me? Christianity elevates human life. How does it elevate human life? Well, first, Christianity instigates democracy. Here's a common myth. Humans trend towards greater and increased rights and human value. Simply not true. It's ahistorical. And I know because we're so smart and now we have Instagram, we like to leave behind history and think we've somehow detached ourselves of postmodern thought. But you are a collection, a continuance of history. Humans do not trend towards democracy. They trend towards chaos, power, and violence. And if you don't believe me, I can book you a plane ticket to a couple examples. (laughs) They don't trend that way. And interestingly enough, democracy as an idea didn't start that way. Democracy started in Athens only for rich men of a certain holding who worshipped a certain god. But democracy as we would think of it, and as we advocate, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, people advocating for democracy, not some other socialism or anything else, people advocating for democracy, would say it's equal rights for all. Now they might debate on what that looks like, but they would say it's equal rights for all. There's no consensus on human rights in our own country. They would say that's equal rights for all. So where did that jump come from? It's only rights for some, that's democracy, it's only, it's rights for all. Well, it came from Christianity. It came because there are people who took Galatians 3.27 seriously. When it says, for all you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. See, the biblical ethic of human equality, regardless of social status, was revolutionary in the development of the concept of democracy. It was revolutionary, still is, in influencing democracy. Democracy as we know it now is only possible because of a Christian ethic, because of the moral foundation of Christianity. And we see that historically because democracy flourishes in countries with a Christian ethical base, And it struggles to wed with other major world religions and other secular religions. Christianity also defends children. That seems kind of universally obvious, right? We should defend children. We should care for children. Like, no one's going to run outside and try to harm a child. I hope not, because we have a security team, and they'll shoot you. Uh, But (laughs) they're going to be so mad that I said that. But they will, just so you know. On your toes, right? (laughs) 
At the time of Jesus' birth, historians were writing that, quote, child abuse was the crying voice of the Roman Empire. For such an enlightened people, it was the black stain upon their empire. Infanticide, the killing of infants and children, and child abandonment were incredibly common. Children were less than slaves, so it meant nothing if you killed them. And I know, you're saying, that sounds crazy. Exactly, that's making my point. The thing that's kicking around in your brain that's going, that sounds bananas. Why would it, exactly, thank you. Because it changed because of Jesus Christ. See, Matthew 19, when Jesus says, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, that was a revolutionary idea for people who had no qualms about killing children. I'm going to read you another non-Christian scholar, Dr. Paul Offit, who calls Christianity the single greatest breakthrough against child abuse. The single greatest breakthrough against child abuse. In Rome, you know when child abuse ended? You know when infanticide ended? When the first Christian empire, emperor became emperor of Rome. Outlawed infanticide in 315. Actually created the earliest form of welfare for the poor in 321. Because not only does Christianity protect children, Christianity cares for the poor, the hurting, and the oppressed. The early church sold what they have. They cared for the poor. They took serious when Jesus said in Matthew 25, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. It was their faith, it was their religion that built places where sick and poor could come in and receive healing and receive treatment and receive care. You know why we have hospitals today? Because Christians built hospitals. You're welcome. By the fourth century, Christians had invented hospitals, welfare systems, and orphanages. You're welcome, world. Right? Been to a hospital recently? You're welcome. It was Martin Luther King Jr. and his associates' faith that led them to believe that nonviolent resistance could overcome violent oppression. The Christian faith has motivated generations of missionaries to die in brutal ways for the sake of sharing hope, healing the sick, and caring for the poor. I love this from the New York Times. Let me read you this. Nicholas Kristof says, Go to the front lines, at home or abroad, in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking or genocide, and some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. Why do I keep reading you people who are not believers? Like, this is church. Just because I want you to recognize that even people who don't recognize or are struggling to recognize God recognize that Christianity has a value historically, socially, ethically, morally. Are you with me? Yeah. Are we better off without religion? No. Christianity is the fertilizer for democracy, the motivation for justice, and the mandate for healing. But I want to bring it to you for a minute because not only is religion good for us globally and historically, but it's good for you individually. Religion makes us healthier people scientifically. If you fell asleep, wake up right now. Scientifically, religion makes us healthier people. There are clear and documented health benefits of religious participation. I'm not talking like you show up every six weeks. I'm talking about like it's a regular a participatory part of your life. You participate in religion regularly. In fact, three decades of 18 different studies showed that religiously involved persons have a 20 to 30% lower mortality rate. Not meaning they never die, but meaning they don't die as early. <laughs> it's like we're vampires. They have less cardiovascular disease. They're 40% less likely to have hypertension. They have lowered rates of anxiety, substance abuse, and suicide. Studies have found that those who actively engage in Christianity have greater purpose in life, less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. Religious participation is linked to greater and stronger relationships, as one Harvard study that I've shared with you before says that good relationships make us happier and healthier. There's study after study after scientific study about what it does to your mental and physical health when you are engaged in religion. Now, when I'm saying religion is good for you, it's kind of like saying drugs are good for you. What are we talking about, turmeric pills or cocaine, right? 
the spectrum's broad. I'm here to say Christianity's good for you. That's my job, right? And I have studied a lot, and I believe, as someone who is a student of comparative religion, that I think Christianity is the best shot because I believe what Jesus says. See, Christian, Christians are those who believe that Christ came to this earth as the greatest gift and the deepest, most powerful act of love, that he died for our sins, that he gave us eternal life, and that Jesus changes everything. And the gospel is hope and love and life, and it changes us. And often people are misinformed at the way they approach uh, religion, but specifically Christianity. As if Christ is giving you things and informing you in ways to control you or to push you or to make you, I don't know, boring or make you do things that you don't want to do. But I want to tell you, Christ guides us in his word and teaches us that actually molds us back into who he created us to be. And there is scientific evidence to prove the things that we often think are the most counterintuitive to culture are actually the most satisfying thing for us psychologically and physically in almost every shape and form. So I want to give you those really quick. Can we do that? Okay, really fast, really fast. Everyone still with me, amen? I know it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Listen to the podcast at half speed later. Number one, it is better to give than to receive. It's better to give than to receive. In a modern culture, surrounded by consumption, involved in consumption, Christianity calls us to do literally the opposite, which is to serve and to give to others. Acts 20, 35, Jesus says, and everything I, or <clears throat> Paul says, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So that's great from the Bible, but I, I don't like that. But I want to tell you, when you do that, it is scientifically proven to be good for you. Research has shown that giving of ourselves is good for us. In a 2013 study, I can only pick one, but there are many, in a study is volunteering a public health initiative, it found that volunteering actually has a positive impact on our mental and physical health. We were created to do it. It's good for us. When we care for others, it actually yields a greater physical and physiological benefit than being cared for. Are you with me? Do you understand what that means? That though it's counterintuitive to the world and its selfishness, it's actually really good for us? That God knew what he was doing and what he's led us to do? The caring for others and work actually increases career satisfaction. The financial generosity actually increases psychological health. Atheist, uh, psychology, uh, atheist psychologist Jonathan Haidt actually said, surveys have shown that religious believers in the USA are happier, healthier, longer lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than our secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time to and of their blood. It's better to give than receive. Number two, someone say number two. The love of money disappoints. For a consumer society, one of the hardest critiques from the Bible is it is basically impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In a, in a 2016 survey, survey, woo, survey, 82.3% of college freshmen said that becoming wealthy is an essential or very important life objective. For the first time in history, it has overtaken raising a family as an objective. Many people believe money will buy happiness. They sacrifice friends and families for career. But studies have actually shown that beyond a general sense of security, increased wealth only slightly increases happiness in people. Jesus warns of the, us of this, right? He says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because money is a struggle for people. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's the scientific reality. Income has raised, happiness has lowered globally. The biblical warning is true. If you invest your life into money over relationships, the returns will never satisfy. Number three, counterintuitive principle that's actually good for us because Christianity is good for us. It makes us happier and healthier. Number three, work is fulfilling when it's a calling. Here's the beauty of Scripture. It single-handedly destroys the love of money, but also puts a greater meaning into our work. 
We're created to be in relationship with God, with others, and to pour ourselves into meaningful work. Regardless of whether you feel like you can choose your job or not, you can always choose how you work at your job, right? How you work at your place of business. Paul encouraged the early church, many of them who could not change their low status in the world. He said their work could be a calling if they begin to glorify God in it. That's what he said in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving, he says. For Christians, our work is our worship. Psychological research tells us we need meaningful work to thrive. What's meaningful work? It's the work you make meaningful. I'll give you a story. There are three men laying bricks. Someone walks up to the first one and says, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm laying bricks. Walks up to the second one. He says, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm building a church. And he walks up to the third one. He says, what are you doing? They're all doing the same work. The third one says to him, I'm building the house of God. Who has a more meaningful job? Well, they all have the same job. Who has more meaning in their job? Number four, we can be happy in all circumstances. This is a counterintuitive principle, right? Humans have a highly developed ability to synthesize happiness. It's called our psychological immune system. And Philippians 4.12 condenses this. It says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Thomas Brown once said, I'm the happiest man alive. I have that in me that can convert poverty to riches, adversity to prosperity. I am more invulnerable than Achilles. Fortune hath not one place to hit me. And so Harvard psychology professor Daniel Gilbert asks, what kind of remarkable machinery does this man happen to have in his head where he can synthesize this happiness? But what he did not realize is that Brown was actually a follower of Jesus Christ. That was the machinery. Five. Somebody say five if you're still with me today. Gratitude is good for us. Amen? Gratitude is good for us. This is another uh, counterintuitive biblical ethic. Contentment in all circumstances. In the midst of his own suffering, in the midst of his own trials, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always as he's being beaten. Pray continually as he's being shipwrecked on a boat. Give thanks in all circumstances as he's being rejected. He said, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He said, amidst all things, choose gratitude and thanksgiving. See, Christians, this is what's amazing. Christians believe that God created us in every good thing we have and sent his son as a free gift of salvation. So thankfulness is not an exercise for Christians. It is a disposition toward a life-saving God. Let me say that again. Gratitude and thankfulness is not an exercise. It is a disposition toward a life-saving God. Okay, two more real fast. Six, self-control and perseverance help us thrive. This might be the most counterintuitive one yet uh, because the world does not affirm self-control and society has definitely not raised up a resilient and persevering populace at large. Resilient in one area, but like collectively resilient, no. Much of life is about instant gratification or instant disappointment and complaining, right? I mean, just go on Yelp, right? But Christians are called to live lives that are characterized by long-term endurance and costly self-control. That's why 1 Peter 5, 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come, so the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Jesus calls the Christian life a hard road, and though it is unglamorous at times, the reality is in our human self that perseverance and self-control are actually key to human flourishing. Like it's proven that to have perseverance, to have self-control is key to a healthier life. Seventh thing, last thing. Somebody say seven. That's the Lord's number, right? Seven. All right, that's God's number. Seven, eight, nine. 
seven. <laughs> Forgiveness is foundational. In fact, band, prayer team, you guys can come up. Forgiveness is foundational. This is what I find amazing just scientifically is that forgiveness not dependent on the actions of the offender has been linked to multiple positive mental and physical health outcomes. Did you hear that? Forgiveness not dependent on the actions of the offender has been linked to multiple positive mental and physical health outcomes. Well, since that seems counterintuitive to the world, who would have taught such a crazy thing as forgiveness in such a way not dependent on the actions of a Oh, Jesus. Jesus teaches us to pray in Luke eleven four. 4, forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. When he's asked, how many times should I forgive? Seven? Seven times seven? He says, seven times 77. Forgive endlessly because you have been forgiven. And it's not that forgiveness is the abandonment of justice, but hear me today. It is bad for you physically and mentally if you do not forgive. It is not good for your body or your mind. And so Jesus loves you, and he knows you, and he says, listen, you need to forgive the premises because you have been forgiven. Amen? Here's what I love about Jesus. All of these ideas I told you are counterintuitive and yet scientifically proven to be good for you. Sometimes culture is not scientific. Because what we see when we study these, we say, well, that's countercultural. Yes, but they're all beneficial to your mental, physical, and spiritual health. Why? Because Christ is good, and following him produces good fruit in your lives, in your family, in your community, in your country. Aren't we better off without religion? Historically, no. Politically, no. Morally, no. Personally, I want to encourage you, no. There's a very reasonable, articulable position that Christianity is good for you personally. But here's what I want to say. If you struggle with the word religion because of your past, here's what I want to say Christ cares the most about. He cares the most about you and relationship with you and being for you. Are you with me? That today the outcome is not you for to say, okay, religion is neat, but to say, yes, Christ loves me and cares for me and has empowered me to care for others. And I can see historically and scientifically when it happens within me, it produces good fruit. And when it happens in the world, it produces good fruit. But it first needs to produce good fruit here. Christ died for you. And when the gospel enters your heart, it changes us. And today I want to give you that opportunity to say, Christ, would you change me? Christ, I need you. I hear what you're saying about the benefits. I, I just need Jesus to do something in my life. I'm going to invite you. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you bow your heads with me? I know there's many things today, many things covered, so I appreciate the respect of walking those through together. But I want to give opportunity, and we did this in first service as well, because I believe that some of you who've never encountered the life-changing power of Jesus Christ are hearing about the benefits of following him. Maybe not so much historically or scientifically, but personally. You want hope. You long for self-control. You long for renewed mind. You long to be happy to be healthy in your spirit it doesn't come through cultural wisdom or norms in fact it comes through the very countercultural teaching of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is here for every person so if you're here in this place for the first time or maybe you have it's been so long since you followed him but you're going to make the commitment again today and you say Jesus I need you as my Lord and Savior I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that you've been raised from the dead. I need you as my Lord God. I invite you right now to raise your hand and say, Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior. And to put it back down. I'm going to pray for you right now. For those of you who raised your hands, I just I want you to hear these words and be encouraged that today, if you've confessed that and you said, Lord, I need you 
Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior, that the old is gone, that the new has come. He's given you life, that your eternity is secured in him. Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, we thank you that if anyone is in you, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That regardless of the weight of that old and the shame of that old life, that when we surrender it to you, you make us new. So I pray, God, a full and complete surrender over every heart that has said, Jesus, I give you my life. I pray they would release everything to you right now. We give you everything, Jesus. We lay it at your feet, and we say thank you that you are our Lord and our Savior in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said, amen. Can we praise God for those who made that choice today? Okay, I told you I was going to end service this way, so now we're here. We're at the end. <laughs> and uh, I promise not all the sermons will be this long. <laughs> But we just felt so led to pray for God to move as we've seen God move. So if you're here today and you would say uh, yourself or someone you know or family member is struggling with cancer, we want to take a moment to pray for you and with you. So if that's you, you'd say myself or someone in my family, someone I know is struggling with cancer. Would you just lift your hand with me real quick? Say that's me. Would you do me a favor? Be so bold. It's just to come forward right here. We're going to pray together. Just come forward. Don't look around, Ben. You basically work here. Just come forward. Come on. There we go. Awesome. Anyone here, ha have you seen miraculous healing for cancer? Anyone? Would you, if you'd feel, so, would you just come and just lay your hands or just point your hands towards the people up front here as well? And we're going to pray together this morning and the band's going to lead us. And if you're here in the church, this is the awesome thing about being the church is that we pray together and believe together, right? And so maybe one week you're up here, maybe one week, you know, you're not, but there, there's just power when the people of God pray together. So I want to invite you, just stretch out your hands towards the front here, and let's pray together this morning and pray for healing from cancer. Lord, we thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here right now. And so, God, we pray over those lives right now who are battling cancer, and we ask by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, that there would be complete and total freedom from cancer today. That every cell would come into alignment with you. That every body would receive complete and total restoration for the glory of your name. God, we speak against tumors that are growing. We pray they would be dissolved in the name of Jesus. God, we pray for those diagnoses that have come in that have declared death over lives. We pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would bring life. That death is not greater than you. That sickness is not greater than you. So great physician, we invite you right now to move upon bodies. Bring healing right now in the name of Jesus. Build our faith. We stand upon your word and say, God, you are the healer. Bring healing in the name of Jesus. Just take a second. Just begin to pray. Lift it up to him as we worship. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.